and welcome to Climbing Consulting with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Today's guests are Tim Smeaton and Simon Walker, co-founders of Kubrick Group. Kubrick is a rapidly growing data science consultancy, which has grown from an idea to over 100 consultants in just 18 months. Having successfully built and IPO'd the global recruitment firm Hydrogen Group, Tim and Simon decided they wanted to build another business and saw a huge gap in the data science space, which led them to start Kubrick. It's worth saying that neither Tim or Simon come from a data background, and their story is a great case study for how making the right decisions early on can enable your firm to become a leader in your chosen industry. Not only is their growth story really impressive, but they've achieved it while pioneering a very different consulting model to the pyramid model prevalent in most management consulting businesses, something we cover in detail in today's episode. Simon and Tim were great guests and shared so much advice from their journey with Kubrick. There's something in here for everyone. Whether you want to know how to create your own consulting business, how you can future-proof your current consulting business, or you want to know how you can move into the cutting-edge area of data science. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tim Smeaton and Simon Walker. Simon, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? Good day so far? Yep, very good day so far. Yeah? yeah. Started well. Let's <laughs> yeah, see how we go after doing this podcast with you. <laughs> I'm sure it'll continue, guys. I'm sure it'll continue. So just to, to kick us off, really, it'd be great for those who maybe don't know you as well, just to get a, a quick summary and overview of your career today and how you, how you got to where you are and why we're here today. Yep. I'll go first, Alain. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm the oldest one. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I was a civil engineer from Salford University, and um, I did a year of engineering and thought, yeah, this isn't really for me, standing outside in the rain. And it was at a time when IT and technology, sort of pre-2000, was um, coming into force, and it sounded like there was a lot of money in it. No one really knew what it was. So I entered the world of recruitment, basically, and worked within the technology sector, and um, had a bit of experience in that. And... The beginning of 2000, I had worked in the recruitment industry for five years and I realised that I saw some opportunities for how it could be done differently. So I, with Simon and a couple of other people, established what was to become Hydrogen Group and built it up from scratch from a small room like we're sitting in right now, for those listening, sort of three or four metres by two metres with a window, cables everywhere. And we built that up to a leading global recruitment business, revenues in excess of about 200 million. And I learned an enormous amount on that journey. <laughs> you know, I learned you only really need to get about 60% right of your decisions. Okay. You don't need to get everything right, but making decisions is really important. And I've learned a lot about hiring pe good people and, and working with them and so on. And we took that company to, listed it on the London Stock Exchange. And, and my career came to an end there as CEO in 2013, when I had some new ideas with Simon about how we could come to the consulting market and make some real differences to both people who would join our organisation and also to the whole data industry and the clients that we could we could work with, really. So 20 years of hard work. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say uh, mine was uh, slightly more uh, a rock and roll start. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I started in film um, and I did a year uh, basically doing uh, things like music videos and adverts. Realised a few things, actually. I learned a lot about myself. One, that um, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> probably, and probably had chosen the wrong degree. And, good to find out <laughs> earlier, I imagine. Yeah, that's right. And 
I basically uh, was also interested very much so in technology and what was happening in technology at the time. It was the, uh, it was the beginning of the dot-com era. Mm. And um, I knew that I wanted to get involved in, uh, in, in that as a career. And actually, I was fortunate enough to meet Tim. And again, for obviously this is on uh, people listening, it was in a tiny little room. I'd, I was actually thinking that Tim uh, maybe had been looking historically with rose-tinted spectacles because... I remember it as fairly awful. I don't remember it actually with a window even, but nonetheless, tiny little room. And I kind of, Tim had a vision of how to be uh, very different in that space. And it was the time when technology and business were starting to realise they needed to talk to each other. And that's where we wanted to specialise in. And that was very, very interesting to me because then I suddenly realised that actually technology was then going to become mainstay. Mm. As soon as businesses realised that actually they had to be communicating to technology and it wasn't just something that you parked away in the corner with you know, open sandals and long hair. It was actually something fundamental to accelerating your business. So yeah, we did that and hydrogen was pretty much an incredible journey. The last seven years of which after um, we listed, I moved over to Singapore and um, grew our APAC operation up there. And it was a great journey. And then we came back and decided that we should uh, do it all again, really. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we will come on to the so many questions off the back of that guys now we'll come on to the the why you decided to do it all again because one can only assume that you as you did so successfully you built hydrogen you ipo'd it was a want not a need that led you to to do it again and lead you here but i want to start with the point you were saying about the little room how you met so how did you meet i'll, I'll probably answer that i think i can i can definitely remember it very factually i've got a Got to give Tim his credit. He's an incredible employer. He can spot real talent. So I was actually his first employee. I mean, you know, he, I don't know how he spots them, but he did. But uh, no, I was, I was um, talking to a lot of uh, tech, different technology organisations. And uh, one of them was um, the, the Little Room, which at the time was known pro as Project Partners. But uh, yeah, it was definitely the worst premises. But the idea and the concept, no one was talking about that. And mm. that's how we met, was the, yeah. the first interview, really. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I've, th there's a commonly sort of held statement that a lot of people employ, which is, you know, you hire on attitude mm. and potential, not on necessarily on competency, particularly for more, for, for more junior members of staff. And my track record has always been based upon that. And, um, you know, Simon, uh, as he's quite rightly said, turned <laughs> up for interview and uh, he looked like he had lots of potential and, it, <laughs> you know, we've become great friends ever since and, and, now, and now we're business partners, really. So um, there were plenty of others as well, <laughs> just so we're aware. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was as easy as that, 20 years ago nearly. Now. Yeah, 20 years ago, yeah. Wow. And so then fast-forwarding 2013, you'd IPO'd, Tim, you'd left the business to do other yeah. things. What was it that led you to start a consulting business? Well, behind every great company, regardless of what they invent, you know, be it WhatsApp with however many employees it was selling for how many billion, there have to be some great minds and some great people behind them. Mm. So my background has always been in uh, industries where you're effectively enabling organisations to use great minds and great people. When we were building Hydrogen Group, that's effectively what we were doing, but we were acting as brokers. And the writing was on the wall, in my opinion, early, sort of earlier on than 2013, that that industry would become effectively, to a degree, digitized. Margins would decrease, there'd be amalgamation of large companies, which you see in maturing markets, and, and, and so on. So we started talking about what other ways are there 
effectively to ensure that organisations have got the right level of bright-minded, intelligent individuals that can help them, you know, with their challenges or with the opportunities they face as, as organisations. So it was really born from that basic principle. And, and what we really wanted to do was basically take more risk. Yeah. Because as a broker, you're, the barriers to entry are very, very low, effectively. The hotels never saw Airbnb coming. Yeah. You know, now they thought the barrier to entry was very, very high because it would cost a lot of money to build a hotel. But actually, of course, what transpired was we all have lots of spare rooms. And so in the same, in the same vein, you know, being a broker in, in recruitment, of course, the barriers to entry are very low. So we wanted effectively to build a business where we could build the product, where we would take the risk and therefore the return would be greater. And we would actually have our own people undertaking this work and we would take great pride in them. And we would invest significantly in, in making them into these sorts of individuals. So yeah. that's kind of how the idea came. It wasn't specifically around data. It was more about the difference between being a broker mm. and actually effectively having a product of your own. I think um, the data element came kind of after we realized what was happening with our own market. And I would say that, that the concept for Kubrick came from frustration because we were, it became very evident when we started to speak to organisations that data was going to feature as a main part in their strategy. And they were using it as a very large, broad brushstroke. But what they were saying was there seemed to be kind of an excitement setting in for what the opportunity um, of data, the correct use of data and the insights that data can create, but also a frustration that they weren't able to do it and also a fear with actually how to handle that data and the risks associated to that. So I think we started to get an inclination this is something that we could help with. And the model that we wanted to employ was being able to bring in a very, very highly skilled young workforce. And really the idea began to be born out of that. I mean, we called it the two-year conundrum where... If you look at lots of companies, you could tell the fear with companies that they knew they wanted young people because they wanted to, them to grow with the organisation. And if you just had a cursory glance at what they were looking for, it was all must have two years. So it was this kind of protective layer and there just weren't enough people with two years, data engineering, data science skills around. And, and that's when suddenly we realised we might actually have something. Although... You know, as, as Tim rightly said, with a very high barrier of entry, not, not just from the point of view of actually building the product and, and cash and investment, but actually it's a really, really technical subject that needs a lot of time and thought if you're going to prepare someone correctly. So I'd say that's where, you know, we knew what the model was, we knew what we wanted to get away from, and then suddenly data started to become more and more apparent as time went by, really, didn't it? But how did you test that model? So you, you guys decided this was a great place to go... What did you do to actually make sure that was the right place to go before piling cash, time, effort into it? <laughs> well, I mean, the, or did you not? You know? <laughs> well, no, 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 I did because the reality was the reason why I left Hydrogen Group as the CEO was as a public company, I wasn't fully in control of it, and I actually wanted to sw uh, switch the model. So actually, I went to some of the organisations that we worked with at Hydrogen Group and said, look, I think the market's changing. I don't think you need a broker anymore. I think it's going to be digitised. And I think there are ways in which we could add further value. And I ran this concept past some of them and they bit my arm off. Wow, OK. I, the problem was, was that I couldn't convince the board yeah. of, of Hydrogen Group that this was the right direction to take the organisation within. So in effect, the, the concept was validated <laughs> prior to me exiting <laughs> because it was in fact the reason why I left 
Gosh, okay. So you actually tried to take this as a the model for hydrogen to transform into, and then when yeah. they said no, no thanks to you decided you'd, you'd take it forward. That's right, because ultimately what we have to be very clear on is that why organisations love us is because we're carrying half a million pounds worth of risk because it costs us that much to train them wow. for four months before we hand them out to projects effectively. So that's a very different working capital and cash flow model than you would have as a broking firm. Yeah. So therefore, that what they didn't want was that cash flow risk. It wasn't that they didn't think the model was valid. Mm. They just didn't want to take on board that additional level of risk. And, and, then, and conversely, you can think that about our clients as well. That's why they use us, right. because their P&Ls just don't allow for them to go and spend that level of money on training. So we take what is effectively CapEx and turn it into OpEx for them. We have had clients that have attempted it. And they're still our clients. So obviously, yeah. they don't, you know, it's, it's, they're not a training business. They're not set up to train someone intensively from scratch all the way through to actually being an effective data engineer in 16 weeks. They can't do it. They have a job to do. You know, that's not their setup. And obviously, they, they use us because we take on that, that cost and we take on that risk. And fundamentally, even though we don't have people brought back, if they, if they wanted to, they know that it's very low risk for them because they could trial Cube, uh, someone from Kubrick and say, you know, that's not quite us, that's not working, so um, have them back. So we really do take on their risk. I really want to come on to that because that's, you know, I think we'll spend a lot of time on how your model is different from the traditional pyramid-style consultancy. But just to that point, Tim, you know, you're carrying 500k of risk to simply train your people. Yeah. How, and mainly this is for you know, people listening who are thinking of starting their own business, how did you get from the people you sounded out on this, how did you know that they were actually desperate for it versus sort of being nice because they know Tim and, you know, the, the old problem of, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. Everyone loves the idea until you ask them to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, none of them were going to sign a piece of paper up front saying, yeah, sounds like a great idea, we'll have it. Yeah. <laughs> we did try. <laughs> and we did try. <laughs> um, well, I think it's like all things, isn't it? If you, you know, if you are an entrepreneur by nature you probably have a, a risk barometer that is different to a corporate individual, effectively. Mm. So I'd never, I've never worked for anyone, you know, apart from you know, a year as a civil engineer doing a sewage treatment plant ex <laughs> extension in Plymouth, which is a pretty, pretty high-powered executive role that I had there. And I know why you left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the puns around shit jobs and everything. Always going on, right? but, um, so, of course, you know, I'm not minded to be fearful of the consequences mm. to my career by taking a risk because, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. So I just saw one particular financial institution, eyes light up mm. when I explained the concept to them and said, you know, if we had 10 of these people and we trained them on, it wasn't actually data specifically, it was kind of a bit more bland than that. And they said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we could have 50. You know, wow. um, I really, it, I really noticed that. So I think you, if you are going to set up a, a, a consulting business or any other business for that matter, you've, you've got to have an angle. You've got to have a point of differentiation, and you've got to really believe it's a point of differentiation. Your clients have got to believe it's a, a, it's a point of differentiation, and then you have to take a leap of faith. Um, and whether or not you're doing it individually, where perhaps your initial outlay is low, or whether or not you know you're getting backing and, and various rounds of funding where you're investment is high, you, sooner or later, you've got to take the leap. And the biggest, the biggest and toughest decision you'll take in building your own business will be the decision as to whether or not you open it in the first place. And someone else said that to me, and it's kind of stuck with me. Yeah. I can't remember who. <laughs> it's a bloody good quote. <laughs> Make it yours. <laughs> and did you, so 
correct me if I'm wrong, Kubrick's now 100 people big, just over 100 people? Just over 100 people, yeah. So, and that's two years, you've been open just over two years. I think last time we caught up, it was yeah, coming up. Yeah, I'd say trading a year and a half. So, I mean, that, that's phenomenal growth for, for any business in that time. When you were setting out, you know, you decided you were going to take the risk, did you guys have a plan for we're going to be 100, 100 big in a year and a half, 200 <laughs> big? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you you can't knock us for confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot <Yeah>. the facts. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I and you know I, I would say early on it was definitely um, the, I mean the plan has turned out to be a realistic plan. Yeah, I'd just say the shape of the plan probably the first maybe six months <laughs> yeah. versus now was slightly different. You know because you are it is a different model, and um, as much as people are very keen. You've also got, we deal with, really, we deal with predominantly large organisations because the organisations that want to use us um, have a lot of data. Mm. And historically, what comes with that is, you know, they have data challenges that they need solving. So to get through procurement and also get them to understand something that's new and different um, definitely took longer than we first anticipated. Yeah. And then once they do, now I would say that every cohort of 15 that we have coming through it's probably around 90% return business. So we have a lot of organizations relying on us now for their data engineers, data analysts, sometimes they use them as junior data scientists coming through. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the challenge for us is that we're a very operationally geared business. So what I mean by that is that there was a hugely significant investment required up front by Simon and I as individuals to actually get the business operational. So there, we have, we, in our style of financial model and operational model is such that we have to go for it. Yeah. Um, it is not a financially viable model to effectively pussyfoot around because mm. it is so operationally geared. The great thing about the type of model that we have, of course, though, is that um, once you reach a certain point in time, then the operational gearing doesn't need to grow at the same pace as the consulting headcount. So we had to grab it by the ears, whatever you say. I can't remember what the saying is. But horns. We had horns, I think, Simon. <laughs> Not the ears. Don't worry, I'm here. <laughs> you had to grab it by the ears and horns <laughs> and, um, and have a plan. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, we don't have a business model that's a four-year plan and we aim for that. We have a living and breathing financial model yeah. that has changed monthly. Okay. Um, that's a very different... Yeah, could you give a bit more background on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have seen the... I've been on the journey from a four-man organisation to 600 people, mm. corporate, mini-corporate, I think I would term it as. And I've seen the positives and negatives of budgeting processes. Yeah. I've seen how they can become hugely detrimental. You know, you end up managing people through fear and people become risk adverse. And actually, you think you're giving them more accountability and ownership by having a business plan and a P&L and a budget, but actually you're not. You're actually generally, generally eroding that. So, and a lot of that stemmed, in my opinion, from being a public company. You know, you need to report to the city. Plus or minus 10% movement on your profit requires a profit warning or an upgrade. You know, these are things that in a highly volatile marketplace, in a secular, biz, secular business, like recruitment, where we've got the GFC, you know, global financial crisis behind us. You know, these, these make a mockery, really, the equity markets of, of running a business because you're just aiming for something that you wrote a year ago and the mm. whole world's moved on. So the reason why I say that is the pace of change is so fast now in the world 
that actually, you know, something we know now, we won't have known a month ago, that could be really, really monumentally important to us at Kubrick Group. You know, we never really thought we would have a proper technical projects team full of much more senior people until year four of our business plan, and we've already got that within yeah. it at the moment. Yeah. And if we'd had a business plan that just said, we won't have one of those from year four, then we wouldn't be entrepreneurial opportunistic. So the benefit of having a good financial model that is robust, that is constantly managed appropriately, is it enables you just to make sure you're not investing too early, making sure that uh, you're not investing too late, you're keeping mm. up with the pace of change, and just shows all the percentages that you need to be hitting between your revenue, your gross profit, and your net, your net, your net profit. And it's a, it's a management tool to, to keep in check so everyone's does, not spending too much money. How does that, how does that work? So you, you know, if someone's listening to this and thinking, I buy that, I want to try that model, is it that the two of you get together in front of a spreadsheet and you have you know, four or five key metrics? Is it one big cash flow spreadsheet? Is it even a spreadsheet? You know, how, do you, how do you actually manage this process and what are your key metrics? Well, the, I mean, I think you've got to go even further back than that. Well, so, because how we're defined. Yeah. We're defined by the cohorts we train. Okay. Obviously, we can't rush that. So that has to be, you know, the cohorts that we train will take 16 weeks and it has to be of very, very high quality. So that's one of the first kind of elements to take into account then, that then is able to be able to have your cash flow and what you're going to make from it. And I think the other thing also that's probably worth mentioning is that, that people build businesses for lots of different reasons. You can build a business to sell it. You can build a business for income. You can build a lifestyle business. You can do all sorts of different things. And depending on what your goal is for the business, then you will have a different style of running that organisation. If you are building it for fast growth, where you're using uh, private equity a lot, then you are going to be running that business for cash. You know, so you might as well forget about P&L because it's all about the cash. <laughs> yeah. you know? Simon and I have funded this business ourselves. We've taken an enormous risk, basically laid all our money on the line on it. So we run it as a cash-based model. So um, I actually think it all starts with the end goal in mind, which is kind of like, what, you know, what, what are the points of failure? So, you know, we don't, I, I mean, we need a P&L, show the banks and all that type of stuff. But the reality is actually, it's, it's cash is king, you know. So I would always start with the cash flow and I'd always build in, you know, I don't know if you've seen some film, you know, programs like Grand Designs. Yeah. Yeah, they always, you know, they always come in. How did you do against your budget? Oh, it was 200% of what we thought it was going to be. Well, <laughs> there's so It's your, always a lovely house though. Uh, yeah, it's always a lovely house. Well, you can build a lovely company if you spend 200, 200% more on it than you expected as well. So... So anyway, that's the other point I'd say, is that, you know, conservatism is king, generally. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, you know, we really should come on to the model because it's very different to many other consultancies and I think, you know, it will help people understand a lot of what you're talking mm. about. Before, though, I, I do just want to ask you, you mentioned the, the entrepreneur thing, the, the risk-taking or the attitude to risk. Was there ever a conversation between you two where you'd done the model and you'd gone, right, we've got to put a ton of cash in here it's our own cash. Was there ever, did you have a conversation down the pub of, right, are we going to do this? If so, you know, what questions did you ask each other or privately did you ask yourself? We've just IPO'd, I might not, I don't know, you might not have needed to do this. Do I, you know, I think something you said to me when we first caught up, you had one business left in you. What questions did you ask yourselves or each other before, you know, pushing the go button on Kubrick? That's a really good question. I, I think my, I mean, I'm speaking for myself here, but my question was, was, was the product and what we, were, what we were offering, was it something that was really viable? Funnily enough, the cash, the cash question for me was secondary. Because if I had any doubt on the model, because mm. it was different and it was unique, 
if I had any doubt on the model that maybe people weren't going to buy or that wasn't where the market was going, and, you know, what was unique about it? Why would people buy it? If I had any questions around that, I wasn't going to do it. So it didn't really stem from the cash, although probably my wife might somewhat disagree. It was, it was, it was really what our proposition was, and that had to be tight. And it hasn't, that has not changed from day one, really, yeah. fundamentally, of what we do. Yeah. I mean, my, my questions really were less to Simon, but more to myself before sort of us talking about it, really, which was I'd never set up a business by myself, and I'd certainly never back one either. I've invested in quite a lot of organisations, small startups, and I always look for people who are at least a, a couple. Not that we're a couple, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but like, a, you know, a threesome or whatever. Um, <laughs> oh, even worse. Even worse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There we go. Uh, there we wow. Go. But you know what I mean. So um, the question I really asked myself was, if I'm going to do this, who do I want to do it with? And I wanted to make sure... <laughs> that's another pun as well, isn't it? <laughs> but no, I wanted to make sure that um, I did it, that I would set up the business with somebody where there was uh, a good enough ability to have a robust conversation without hurting each other's feelings. I'd want to do it with somebody where there was a complementary skill set. Simon and I have always worked very well together in that he's got his role and I've got mine. You know, and the only point where we might ever get contentious... Uh, or, or something would be contentious and, and we'd argue about something, is probably the bits in the middle where we're not sure who owns what. <laughs> yeah, the grey areas. The gray, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the, you know, they're the questions I ask myself and then, and then the points that Simon said, really. And could I put up with working with Simon for the next 10 years again? Yeah. That was a no. Or could, he live with, or could he live without doing it? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Fantastic. I think, you know, you, you mentioned it again there and I think it'd be great to actually spend some time on, on the model. Yeah. Um, you know, I think just as open as that, you know, could you give for my listeners just an outline of actually what Kubrick is and how what the model is and why why it's unique? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Kubrick was set up to uh, enable organisations to solve their data challenges, and we do that differently to most. We look at more of a longer term solution for clients. So the way we do that is we employ what we call junior professionals so sometimes they're fresh graduates or they're one or two years in industry but the the common denominator of them all is they have exceptionally strong applied mathematics they're very very logical and they have very good compelling communication skills and what we do is we we employ those people um, to get to that stage of employing them is i think we'll talk about it later but is is a fairly arduous process because we've got to make sure that they're the right people and then we train them in a data toolkit. And that, as, I, as we mentioned before, that takes 16 weeks. But we train them in a, in a toolkit that enables them to be able to be a, a disciplined data engineer and then provide analysis on that data. So they train in SQL, Python, the Python libraries for more machine learning, and also how to, how to visualize data and their findings. So we, we fit that into 16 weeks within our data labs here it's all it's all in house it's done by our um, training team and then we give them to our organizations to help them with their data challenges and our guys have with us a two year training one because obviously it costs a lot of money and time to be able to train them to the level that they're required to be able to hit the ground running at client sites and what we say to clients is is once that training bond drops away you're more than welcome to employ that person directly so they can, incre in they can increase their own in-house capability. And what we found is a lot of our organisations, a lot of the organisations we work with have validated this model now because we're getting to the stage where our first group's going through and they're all being offered and... So they're being offered jobs by their end client. That's right, yeah. And that's no cost to them. So you don't, you, it's not, there's not recruitment? No, 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 no. You don't no, take a commission? No. It's, it's that two-year programme for us 
they get to bring on staff that they've probably put a lot of time in and they've got to know and they've become very valuable. And it's a lot of our clients have described it as a, a bit of a, I think it was, we had one client that said, this is how uh, modern consultancy should be. And they use it as a longer term staff augmentation model. And on the flip side, the people that join us have an incredible opportunity to accelerate their career in fundamentally data being an exceptionally exciting industry. And one that I think they would find very, very difficult to get into without that foundation of training. I want to come on to the staff and, and more into the model, but how did you two get? So you obviously, you know this area, you're experts in it, but day one, you're not from a data background, you're from a recruitment background. How did you actually get to the point where you could be credible in this industry and then you actually hire people, you know, like you said, sort of the top 1% of mathematicians, I think you said last time something, it's something like one in every 60 candidate uh, applications actually gets through. So how did you get to the point where you had the knowledge team confidence to actually be able to go and sell that as a product to candidates and clients? I mean, honestly, spending a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I know that yeah. sounds really sort of, uh, such a sort of obvious thing to say, but we went and hired a team of advisors. So what we weren't looking for is advisors on how to grow the organisation, because we've done that before, but we were looking for advisors around the world of data. So we hired four advisors, and then we hired some technical people, and we got those advisors to oversee the creation of what we were going to train people in to make mm. sure it was relevant. And then we got people from industry not the, who weren't trainers. We don't employ trainers. We mm. employ technical specialists. And we worked very, very hard for about eight months, nine months, to effectively create a, well, it was originally a 14-week program. We actually extended it after the first couple of intakes, but um, to create, the, if, if you will, a curriculum because the complexity lay obviously in what you're saying about the world of data and, mm. and, and so on, but the complexity actually lay in how do you get these individuals to do some work for 14 weeks whereby they're going to learn an absolute load and it's not theoretical. So we also had to get clients on board who would give us mini projects to do during the training. Okay. So, you know, so it's lots of inputs and, and, and we didn't know what we didn't know at the time, but we knew it we kind of had a vision in our mind of what that experience had to be like during that 14 weeks and what they had to come out looking like. So the, the complexity lay in, in what we actually physically got them to do. Because we can write SQL, Python, whatever. We, you, know, you, can write, you can write the recruitment consulting shopping list of data, can't you, that you see on all the job ads. Yeah. But that mm. isn't, is, is, is highly irrelevant, really. It's, it's kind of what are these guys going to do in their first 100, 200, 300 days with our clients on these projects? And will they be productive in week one? And a lot of that is to do with actually making sure they can actually do some stuff yeah. as well as being able to code in Python or whatever that might be. So that's where the complexity lay. And to be truthful, we just threw a lot of, we threw a lot of people at it and spent a lot of time working on it and creating something. And the first couple of groups that we did, you know, I think we probably were, we give ourselves a six out of 10, yeah. to be fair, yeah, yeah. probably in fair. terms of what we've done. And now we've got a very dynamic environment where I would say, with every intake of people, it changes about 10 to 15% what they're experiencing during their 16 weeks. Now, that's partly due to the pace of change within our industry, but that's predominantly due to the fact of the feedback loop that we go through with our clients and with our people. We keep getting that little, that little bit better. You know, we drop this, we pick this up and, and so on. So um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned from it is just how much energy, effort, and intellectual horsepower has to go into designing 
mm. effectively the experience that they have yeah. during that 14, initially now 16 week, 16 mm. week period. We still haven't cracked it though. No, no it's always improving, <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so that's the, that's the sort of internal side, you know, you've put that effort into developing your training. How did you, you know, initially actually find these candidates? You know, right now you're, you're a brand, people know you. How did you set out to find the best of the best in this field? Well, we, what, what we did was we undertook, basically, to get a huge amount of feedback from people that knew. And we quickly managed to build a picture of what people would say, in all soft and technical skills, but what would they look for that would make a phenomenal consultant in data? data specialist and we quickly started to write tests to see if we could validate that so during an interview process could we find could we test them on certain aspects be it logic inductive reasoning maths could we find tests that would actually be able to pull out some of these traits and then I think that Tim and I were very very we were definitely competent in being able to look at the softer skills that we knew would work so you know a high degree of questioning and how they question, not, not just someone that would do something without questioning it. And we have, I won't say what they are here, because there might be people um, <laughs> listening that uh, maybe want to apply to us, and I so I wouldn't want to give them any advantages. And basically that got better and better. And now I would say we have a series of tests that we quickly are able to establish whether we think that someone will be good and perform well at a mm. client site, and gives us a good foundation to then train yeah. the technical toolkit on top of that. I mean, the other thing is we are a data company, so we collect data from the minute someone applies to the minute they effectively would leave our employment. So we know, you know, through, through validating uh, how we test, how we video interview, how we telephone interview, and, and, and so on, what good looks like when they're out mm, physically yeah. with consultant, consulting with our clients. And we've had that feedback loop complete. Mm. We've actually done some really great visualizations in using tools like Tableau, one of our partners, to actually show what elements of our training might actually have the biggest impact on the client feedback on them that we didn't realize. But I, will, I would actually add one other thing that I don't know if you remember, Simon, but we, I brought in a guy who was ex-MI5, um, yes. who went to marry one yeah. of our members of staff, yes. Denise. Yes. Do you remember his name? Yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah. And we brought I him in. I think he gave us a fake name. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he came in and uh, he really impressed me. He was a bit strange. Uh, but he really impressed me when I met him because he had these incredible observation skills and he, des and he designed sort of scenario-based games that they would obviously use in the government to mm. assess people. So I thought that'd be a really great idea for us as a leadership team to start using some of these just to test our skills. We went through a period of about a year and a half as a leadership team that was hell <laughs> because these things really highlighted. And what is a, so is this just to, to help clarify, scenario-based as in, you know, the business goes bust, there's a recession, what, what sort of yes, scenario? Yes, I mean, I mean, there weren't, there were perhaps, I mean, the ones that we undertook were slightly more, were slightly more uh, kind of out there type situations, everything from doing with, you know, you're living on an island to, you know, this type of natural disaster happens and, and all this type of stuff that, you know, they're, they're designed to put you under pressure. So we don't use necessarily that type of thing here, but what we learned from that is actually putting people under pressure and having to test their resolve and capability to think both creatively and logically was actually really what we were looking for. So what we did was we designed certain challenges that I can't go into that effectively are not necessarily uncomfortable, but are pretty testing because you haven't got a lot of time to think about solutions to, to, to quite abstract 
abstract challenges. So, mm. you know, none of our, as uh, Simon said, if anyone's going to apply, none of our testing or scenario-based challenges are anything to do with being a data consultant. No. What they are to do with are having to come up with ideas in a field of expertise you may already have mm. to solve some problems using a certain process that we may give them. Um, and, um, yeah, so we've worked hard on designing those. You can't find them anywhere else. They're our secret source yeah. Um, yeah. In, in, in finding good people, really. And we can see an absolute direct correlation between the tests that Simon's talked about and these challenges that we give them and the client, client feedback that we yeah. have. And that's what's got, made our hiring better. And what is it that's helped you attract good people in the first place? So, you know, this sounds fantastic. To get to this point, that you've got to fill the hopper of simply people applying. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So we've gathered recent feedback on people that have applied to mm. us. And one of, the, one of the things, there's various reasons, but one of the ones that stands out at the moment is that current graduate programmes and rotation programmes are not working for a lot of people. So within data, it, it really does require to have a strong specialism and understanding in that field. And if you're on a typical graduate rotation programme for maybe one of the big four, you are jumping from department to department. And actually, you need a deep understanding of this. Also, it has helped at the moment that it's an industry that I think gets um, a lot of press yeah. and a lot of people understand it and want to get into it. So we are attractive because we are getting people and we are specialising in that field. And they see, us a re they see us as a real accelerator, a real platform. So um, we're definitely having applications increasing at the moment as our brand builds and people start understanding more about what we are. Our referrals have increased, I would say, quite dramatically. Every group that we have through, we will always have kind of a good 20% that uh, referrals from our current staff. And, you know, the fact that uh, I think that they are going to be prepared and they're in technologies that people hear about and want to know about and want to learn. It's an attractive proposition for them. You know, you're, you're, you are paid to train. We, we pay these guys a salary whilst they sit there in our data labs and, and learn all this really, really cool tech. And so how at the start, though, you know, you're, you've decided to build this, you're plowing a lot of money and you've, bought, you've brought on your advisory panel. Did you ever, were there any conversations at the start when maybe you have that tension of, do we scale quickly by lower, you know, you set out to build a premium product, get premium people in, did you ever face any challenges uh, around speed of growth versus quality of candidates? Because I, I, and this might not have been a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think we haven't. We have different challenges to growth yeah. okay. at different phases, and um, probably what surprised us the most is the challenges to our growth are not what we thought they would be when we originally wrote the business plan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did you think they were versus Well, I th now? I think you've hit the nail on the head with one of them. I think we thought it would be really hard to hire the right number of people of the right quality, so we didn't drop that, so we didn't drop that ball. I mean, we probably underestimated how difficult it would be to to actually train them in a manner that was I mean, you can go on, you know, people just have to go on Glassdoor or something like that to see that is really intense in every way, shape or form. So it's intensely fun, it's intensely challenging, you're supported, but it's, you know, it's an intense working day. It's not sort of standing there with someone writing on a whiteboard, you know, here's some Python code. So I think in answer to your question, really, you know, the challenges to growth really we're finding, and I suspect we will continue to find, are how good, we want really amazing people who, who want to develop people. 
And lots of people say, God, you've got a really, you know, really authentic business there. We really like that. I mean, a lot of people have said to us that, that you know, it's a good, good business. You know, my, the, the organization I don't work for, you know, I work at Company X, you know, they don't invest in training like they used to. What you're doing is really great, particularly people who have got, you know, kids who are in their teens up to yeah, about 30 right. years old. They often see us as very admirable, is a common word, yeah. in terms of what we do. Um, so our challenge really is, is making sure that that quality that Simon alluded to before in our development of these people and the experience they have when they're with us is absolutely awesome. And we've got a lot of things wrong, coincidentally. You know, as I said to you before, you know, we get about 60 to 70% of the stuff right in a business. In, our, in my experience, then, and the market's right for the business, the business will fly. But, you know, we, we, our, our hindrance to growth is having some people in our HQ at the moment, this is being totally transparent, who want to develop, you know, these junior professionals into data experts and take utter pride in, in doing that. And that, I think, will be... If it was that easy to develop people, then everyone would be doing it. Yeah. Mm. And that's our, yeah. you know, that's, that's our special source as well that, is, that we've really absolutely. worked very hard on. And I think that, it's again, it's a very interesting differentiator between the traditional model and your own. You know, you are, your business model, and very overtly, is you come in, we train you to this really high standard, you stay with us for two years on client, and then I almost get the sense it's you're encouraged to, to leave. Not, not, you don't have to, but your, your clients might take you, you might have a job elsewhere. How have people responded to that? Is that... What do you mean the people that work, that work with us? So both people who work with you and clients. So from, I'm so I do the people, I'll do the people that work for us. You can yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, so, so what we witness is that initially people come here because of the quality of the training, effectively, and they want to accelerate their career into, into the data industry. So it's only really as they continue on their journey with us that they start thinking about what they really want their career to look like. So when they join us, we say to them, you can join the clients directly. We expect about 75%, 80% of people to do that. Um, we don't know that. We, we were kind of guessing at the time because obviously yep. we hadn't done it before. And um, maybe 20% might, might, might stay with us because they want a consulting style, more transient type of, type of role. I think what happens though when we see people go out onto our client projects is they become a little bit more native. Mm. You know, they kind of go native on site as we would call it. So I think it's just a natural progression that a lot of these people will want to transition onto the workforce. Mm. That said, we are building, and well, we have built already and are scaling our own internal projects team, which has got more senior people in, mm. which we utilize for, you know, onboarding our people on site to clients or more shorter term projects, or even where we're given problems in our data labs here to try and innovate and work a solution for a client yeah, a outside their concept, concept. Yeah, yeah, proof of concept, etc. So we want to keep some, but we want them, those people probably to be the people who, who like change, who want to have a transient career, who like working with lots of different clients. Not everyone, not everyone particularly enjoys that. So I think, um, you know, time will tell, but and a client perspective, I would say that that would be one of one of the key attractive factors about us. You know, one is that we have a, a competitive cost point, and people are very, very highly skilled. And um, the other one would be that they are keen on being able to look at this as a longer term um, solution. A lot of the projects they're working on is, you know, this is something that a lot of them are at the beginning of their data journey. Um, and they see this as they see this as a long journey. So they want people to grow up within the organisation, and uh, this is one route of doing it. And you know, we know we already know with this group going through that our clients are very, very keen to retain those people. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever think about this one, but I mean, you know, if you're going to scale 
a consulting business, they're ultimately really making it quite black and white. There's only two ways to do it. Either you basically recruit and train your own people, mm. or you hire from others and suffer wage inflation. And most organizations maybe try and do a little, a little bit of both. But for those people who might be listening who are trying to start it from scratch, that the barrier to entry is, is going to be generally around, have you kind of got the ability and finances and resources available to you actually train your own staff? So, you, so of course, they're probably going to end up having to team up with other people to actually build their own consulting, consulting businesses, consulting mm. businesses to yeah. start with. I, you know, we've always built businesses by bringing people in and training them. And we've been really amazed by the loyalty that, that people have. You know, they call them the snowflakes and Generation Z and lots more derogatory terms. But I don't, I don't think they're any different to eons ago when I was their age. Um, if I'm entirely honest, you know, there's some that are really ambitious, that are really loyal, who really, you know, are very yeah. grateful for what we give them. And there are some that aren't. Mm. Just the same. There was, there's yeah, years. I so, agree. So, Tim, just something you, you mentioned there around sort of the standard consulting business model. Again, you know, this is both a question from a, a sort of business growth side for yourselves, but equally when you take it out to clients. You know, the, the typical consulting model is a pyramid. The, and you make the most money on the junior people, which, you know, like a pyramid scheme filters up, and you make less money on the, the people at the top. You know, something that is quite unique about what, what you're doing is, Firstly, you've only you've only got the most junior layer, which most people would go, fantastic, you'll be raking it in. Then actually, though, you charge them out at what I would say is a phenomenally low consulting day rate. You know, we've talked about the training they go through, the type of people, and then you're charging them out at probably half, if not a third or a quarter of what some of the, the sort of more traditional consulting firms are, yeah. are doing. I'd be really interested, actually, how you set on that and how you've approached it from a business growth side, but equally... How do you sell that to clients? Because there's a danger that it almost becomes too cheap and they worry, what am I getting for, you know, if it's too good to be true, it, must be, yeah. it, must be, yeah. it mustn't be true. I think that our challenge was not price orientated, but was proving the quality of the people. Because, you know, whether it's plus or minus 200 quid a day to some of our clients, the actual cost to them was, would be, if I bring this person on board, and they screw something up, or they're a bit of a pain, or actually they're nowhere near as good as I hope they'll be, that there is a hugely, much greater intangible loss than actually, you know, a few weeks of paying them 500 quid a day or whatever and, 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 and kicking them off site. So, well, we did have to get over that, and what we did was we went out and, and we set a price point whereby uh, we would get people's attention, and we purposefully wanted to have a broad range of organizations that were across sector so we're sector agnostic because we're data experts um, and a lot of our clients like the fact we don't have domain experience because we think about solving problems in a in, in a different manner but i think the other thing to think about is that i, I talk about the recruitment industry from my previous experience there it was a boys club mm. or whatever you want to come not being sexist when i say that but it was a club yeah you know everyone charged high margins and off we went. And there's lots of industries that do that. There's the property industry, for example, yeah. as well, isn't there? There's brokers on both sides of a deal, which acquisition agents and selling agents, you know, and things, things of this nature. So I think there's just industry pockets where they've had very good margins. And then people come along and have disrupt a crack and, yeah. and disrupt that. And, yeah. and the ways in which they do it, either through a price point or through digitizing it or through adding some value that's quite, quite significant. And we purposefully came into this consulting market within the data industry wanting to demonstrate that we were the type of consultancy that you'd want to do business with because 
you know, the price point's right. And mm. secondly, you know, we don't march off site with our people when the work is done so that you want us back again. We let you keep them at the end of that period if that's, if that's what you want to do. So we thought there was just a really great opportunity to have a business whereby we'd make a huge difference to the people that we hired by accelerating their career and we'd make a huge difference to our clients because we'd charge at a totally transparent rate that would generate the margins that we're looking for for the type mm. of business model we had and they would get really, really good quality. So, um, you, know, we're, you know, we're unashamedly cheap yeah. but high quality. Yeah. And the other side of that point is, and it's another more traditional side to the model, is most consulting firms are engagement-based. So, And this is probably more towards your senior engineer. We have a, a fixed problem. We need people to come in and solve it. Your model is almost the reverse of that, is we have great people who you can point at what you want for as long as you want. Um, the challenge you may get with that, though, is clients saying, well, look, you're giving me a junior guy, 16, you know, 16 weeks is fantastic, but they're 16-week trained, and they've got no senior oversight from your team. And correct me, you know, correct me at any point, but how do you help clients see past that? Or what, is, what are the challenges that you had to respond to and help clients through? Funnily enough, we haven't had that a lot from clients okay. as a challenge. Um, and I think that one of the elements of consulting that probably wasn't working for clients is actually they did have business as usual or or you know, run the company projects that required someone there to be, be on their daily and be, be working under the guidance of the client. And I think they were using some of the larger consultancies that were more expensive in that way. And actually, we do work on statements of work. We do work with objectives and, and end goals. But what we're giving them is something different. We're giving them someone that will grow with them that can be pointed to projects. In fact, we've got loads of examples where a lot of our guys are on, are on finite projects but that we know that, there, or our clients certainly know, there'll be another one at the end of it, and they mm. don't give them back. And I suppose that does, you know, reflect on our price point as well, is that it will require some client guidance and help. But don't get me wrong, our guys will, our whole aim of the training and preparing them is that they will hit the ground running, and they are competent. But they're not, they don't have domain experience, yeah. per mm. se. I think the other thing also, is you think about a modern organisation, really, it's really hard to describe the interactions and how everybody works together in a contract. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know any projects in these organisations where you could really truly carve it out and say that it is being run by the consulting firm. And that is a lot of reasons why a lot of these large consulting firms do so well because they sort of, you know, their web kind of filters out across mm. the entire organisation into multiple projects and then everyone's writing change notes and all this type of stuff and that becomes an industry and then you've got a big PMO facility yeah. and, and, you know, and, 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 and effectively that happens. So I think there's also just a realisation potentially that actually, you know, much more blended solutions of combinations on project teams of some domain knowledge and, you know, permanent employees of that organisation some consultants, maybe some expert oversight from a consulting firm where they really are experts in a particular field, creates a, creates a more uh, and better, better response. Now, the, the, the flip side to that, of course, is how do you actually cover your bases legally and try and hold accountable the organisations that you're bringing in in that sort of blended solution? But it must be such that the line managers and the directors who are trying to deliver these projects feel that way and like that blended solution mm. and like the agility of it because they wouldn't they, they want they really want to go that way now procurement and other channels 
within an organization that are there from a more control orientated approach you know they might not like that so much because it's hard to pin people pin people down but i think um i don't know i don't i don't see uh i'm saying simon I, I don't see that feedback from clients as an issue yeah no i haven't seen it Brilliant. Good, good to hear. So I do want to come on to some more point advice for, for junior colleagues, but I think that the last question really on, on your journey, and Tim, it's something you've mentioned a couple of times around, you know, if you get six out of ten, you're going to be successful. You know, you're now sort of those two years in, what is... What is it you wish you knew? You know, it's, it's, oh. what, what is it you you know? And take it, take it as you know. How many? I don't mind. But what is it you wish you knew back at the start yeah. that two years in now you would have would have helped you accelerate that journey even faster? Well, I've got to say, I can go back across my entire career and say I still make some of the same stupid mistakes that I did when I started the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. so <laughs> You know, and I'm still making them now, probably. Um, only hire people where you walk out of the room going, no matter what it takes, I've got to get that person on board in my company. And if you don't walk out of the room saying that, don't hire them. Yeah. And I continuously make that mistake because work piles up. You need people. Mm. Jobs have got to get done. So we lower the standard every once in a while. So that's one thing I think has really sticks with me. Still drop my guard on it. It's funny enough where we're not involved with, with, um, with the HQ staff for, for op the operational day-to-day -day running of the business. I think we can sometimes make that mistake probably where, we're, where Tim and I have set the rules for our consultants coming in and we've set, we've set these black and white rules and tests. You know, those mistakes aren't made because it's being run by, run by other people, not, not Tim and I taking, an, taking a chance on people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I definitely would say... Uh... Another thing I would say, okay, I might not be asking you questions specifically here, but these are things that sort of resonate with me, is that, you know, I, uh, I think to be good at beginning, starting your own business and growing your own business, you, you have a sort of barometer, which, you know, which is kind of like a risk one, but is also a barometer between gut feel and evidence-based. And one of the problems <laughs> I've experienced in, in businesses that Simon and I have built before is that we have tended to be too gut feel. And actually... Gut, the gut feel to evidence-based decision barometer tool is a situational tool. So the best, another good piece of advice I could give is that, you know, sometimes when you need to make a decision, you need to do it on gut feel. And that might be when no evidence is available or it's a quick decision that's required, like starting your business, you might just want to get on with it. And we definitely did a lot of gut feel on that. But sometimes you want to use evidence-based criteria to make a decision and I think you know if I look back at the most costly mistakes that we have made together individually or whatever it might be it has been when the barometer was in the wrong place for yeah. the decision that needed making yeah and so to have a good business partner you know which I said before which one of my biggest considerations is to you know Simon and I working together was can that other person hold the tension on saying are you you know are you answering not not are you right but is the style that you are utilising to answer the challenge correct for the situation that you're in? So, you know, and I still make those mistakes as well. Gut feel, you know, too quick a decision when a slower one is required. I think also it's interesting when, um, when I've seen other people start their business, how uh, people seem to revel in being a startup. And uh, what that sometimes screams to me is that they don't want to do the stuff that they don't want to do. They want to do all the fun things like go to conferences and uh, pontificate over an espresso and kind of draw amazing plans. And I think where Tim and I have worked well together is 
sometimes you don't want to do things, but they're really key to the business and you have to execute and you have to be disciplined and you have to do the things that are going to make the difference. And, you know, you, we, we both have seen startups and we both invested in startups that where I would say that probably the people running those didn't necessarily want to execute on the things that needed to be done and put the hard work in in areas where, you know, probably wasn't that fun. Mm. And I think that's really, really key because we both invested in, in companies yeah. outside. Amazing still. companies. Yeah, incredible ideas, but haven't. There's no execution. Yeah, well, wanted, I mean, a very, very good one was, I'm not going to go into it now, but a very good one was, you really got me thinking about this, was you know, a company that developed a really cool product for hotels that was well ahead of the market. And it was really cool. I mean, investors were jumping through hoops to put money into it. But did any of what them want to either hire a salesperson or get on the phone to any, any hotels to sell this damn stuff? <laughs> then two years of <laughs> trying to persuade them to actually do that and then them going down the toilet. Is, is, you know, and you, you see a lot of that. You know, you do. In fact, uh, the, the example I was thinking of um, was that actually a guy that started up a consultancy. And um, a lot of it was about product development for, for him and what he was going to say to his clients and all this. And I could see the writing on the wall because, you know, I met him a month later and nothing had changed. And I just wish, you know, he'd just gone, right, I'm going to, this is how I'm going to execute. And these decisions are going to make a really big difference. Like, such as speaking to clients because they're the ones that pay the yeah. bills. <laughs> you, you, you see, there is a very big difference between our model and perhaps some of the consulting models that people might be trying to start. Our model is very clear. We have, we have the people that, that operationally run the business and we have the people that consult. The biggest growth barrier to growth for consulting firms and training firms, ironically, is that if you are the consultant or the trainer and the salesperson, yeah. you will always have a higher level of oscillation in your mood yeah. <laughs> based upon the fact that I've got loads of work. Oh, God, I'm on site now doing a load of work. And then suddenly I'm not, and now I've got to sell it. So a really good piece of advice is actually you've got to have a, a good business partnership should have the operational element and then the, you know, the delivery element because you can't do everything. So you see a lot of training companies that get to three or four people and they never get any bigger. That's right, scale then yeah. becomes a real Scaling issue. Scaling is a real issue. I mean, you're just a contractor otherwise, ultimately. You know, so making the leap... Yeah. requires investment to having a couple of people that can do all the other stuff that you don't want to do if you're an expert in... And it, it might be that same point around planning versus execution, but for those, you know, your, your junior colleagues, what is it for you here at Kubrick that that you find um, most frequently holds junior colleagues back? You know, what is it that separates the best uh. of your team from the good or the okay? I mean, I would say I've got, I've got a recent example. There's a few. <laughs> Um, I would say that um, urgent versus important, you know, what they think is probably really, really urgent and important, I'd probably debate yeah. whether it is. The impact around that decision, you know, I think sometimes people may not, it might feel like it's got a huge impact decision they have to make or what they have to do. Yeah. And it probably isn't. And I, and I don't necessarily think that comes with experience. I think that comes with them breaking the problem down, actually understanding yeah. it and asking them and stopping and pausing and asking themselves that question. Yeah. 
I, I was going to say that. I think the, the biggest thing we learned in our training and development was we had to train people how to solve problems properly. So we're fools rushing. You know, when I was younger, my mother and father used to have all these really boring sayings like, we're fools rushing. And I used to think, what a load of rubbish. And then I find myself in my mid-40s. So I'm not actually, <laughs> And I actually find myself saying these sayings now to a lot of these people. And, that, and they are actually true, a lot of them. Yeah. And actually, I would say we're fools rushing. So, you know, none of our clients want to pay us money for someone to do a load of work that doesn't solve the problem. So... You know, those that are really, really good spend a lot of time asking all of the right questions to accelerate the solution. Yeah, really define the problem. And define the problem. And, and, and that is a common problem. And we, I can't tell you the number of times we go to meetings and meet some of these clients and they tell us what they want doing. And we spend an hour asking them a load of questions and then we walk out and the client says, which I think is great, great compliment to us, walk out saying, actually, we didn't know really what we, what we wanted from you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's great for us because yeah. that does our credibility a little good. And I say the other one finally is is that people that do really well tend to have good ethics, good values. They care about other people. They they seek first to understand others rather than effectively be understood themselves. Put other people first. And these are just some basic values that I really do believe actually do do you very well in life and in mm. and in a career. And 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 you know, and if you've got a good degree of self awareness. And um, you know you're not uh, too too up yourself. Then I think generally <laughs> that's quite a big differentiator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. And so we've we've covered a, a huge range of topics from from building businesses to to that point you were just highlighting around. Well, firstly, phrases your your parents would have told you. Maybe there's a book on that. Um, and sort of what what it is for you that separates your your best people from the sort of the good people. I'd be really interested in terms of books or you know, ways that people can learn this you know what books if you do do you find yourself recommending and take this how you want to maybe the entrepreneurs who you invest in maybe to people who say I want to start a consulting business like yours or, or maybe it's your team who come in hungry saying you know I want to learn where what book should I read there was one book that both uh, Tim and I used a lot when I when I suppose the seed of the idea of Kubrick or changing the business um, was going to happen that it was a book called um, first be nimble and I won't go into too many details, but it's about a chocolate frog and a, a, a chocolate factory and a ba basically how to be brave and innovate. And it's written yeah. by a guy called um, Graham Winter. And it effectively, I think we've touched on it earlier, but it talks about execution. It talks about innovate. Don't talk about it. Don't pontificate. You know, do it. Be brave and do it. And the other one that we use a lot, both in uh, YouTube videos he does, but um, also Burke's is Simon Sinek. And that mm. is maybe a lot as well, because uh, I think he has some very, very good views on employing millennials and, and young people. And he shares, or well, we definitely share some of the same views, but there's a, a great book called Start With Why. So many people want to rush in and say what the solution is to something, or, you know, but they don't start with the why. Um, and get an emotional connection from someone. And that's definitely what we tried to do with the setup of Kubrick, was actually get a bit more of an emotional connection from the people that join us of why, and also from the people that use us. Um, not just talking, you know, we, we talk about giving them greater choice. We don't pile in with talking about we're a data consultancy and we do Python and we do SQL and things like that. So I'd say it was those, the, those two books definitely, are, I think, are instrumental. Yeah. And Hello Magazine. <laughs> That's always a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you can so you can keep up with the, local, the news, the gossip news with our guys. Yeah. I've got to say, I've, I've not had any guests recommend Hello yet. So. <laughs> I was actually, it was a, yeah. 
Is that that's the tip for keeping up with millennials? Is it read hello so you know who's on Love Island? Is it Love Island? Love Island, Island yes, yeah. that's yeah. just starting. They talk about it? that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've got to. Uh, I mean, I don't, I've got to say actually that it goes to show, doesn't it, that. Um, I, I don't actually read that much. <laughs> I was listening to Simon thinking, oh, God, yeah, I do remember that book. Because <laughs> you said the chocolate frog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm very much of the... Well, I think we're kicking a, on a bit, and we do act but, like the younger generation. But because I in many respects, I would actually just go to YouTube and type something in. But I genuinely reckon it's, I reckon <laughs> yeah. it's only those two. Simon Sinek. Well, Who Moved My been... Cheese was a book that I read 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Because it was short. <laughs> and the words <laughs> were big. <laughs> <laughs> no pictures, though. So well done. No, no pictures. Yeah, and that's definitely good about how to cope with change. Yeah. yeah, changing environment. But, but yeah. the, the, the point is very little actually does change, really. Mm. I mean, we have a really... We've been very successful, I think, in bringing in ex-military into okay. our HQ. And um, I think they find there's a stigma attached, incorrectly, in my opinion, that, you know, they, uh, they talk a different language, you know, and they come mm. to City Street and all this type of stuff. But actually, I think if you actually just look at how they're taught to lead, manage... Mm. and give ownership to people. It's a misconception that they just bark orders, kind of thing. That's right. Um, so I'm pretty team, sure... isn't it, as well? Yeah, that's right. Really, 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 really good team, team players. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, 30, 40, 56 years ago, you know, at Harvard Business School, when they st first started writing their management books, that they probably originated from, actually, how the First and Second World War, people in the armed forces learned yeah. how to motivate and clearly... Uh, give people ownership and, and get them to do stuff. So I, I, you know, I don't think actually a lot changes really, if I'm entirely honest, culturally and, and and things of that nature. So if you read that book ten years ago, I mean, I think you could hand out who moved your cheese to any large scale monolithic, still use now, monolithic brand, you know. Than I read it about uh, about a year ago, and oh, I yeah. think it's spot on. You know, yeah. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, as you say, actually, that people add different colours and flavours, but in essence, it you know what works works yeah. and it's, it's about driving forward with that yeah so last question and, and thank you so much for your time it's been you know really enjoyed it La last question and this is one i ask all my guests um and it's to give a point piece of advice to to three people and that's three people on their different areas in their consulting journey and feel free to take this from your your time running kubrick from your time running hydrogen is you've got three people in front of you one of those is just starting their career in consulting so maybe just about to start maybe a you know, a few months into your, a month or so into your training. You've got someone who's four to five years in, so sort of, in my parlance, a senior consultant manager, but, you know, middle grades. And then you've got one who is approaching partner. And you can take that one how you want, but in effect, someone who's about to come up to a, an equity position or a senior management position. What one piece of advice would you give to each one? Well, the first, the youngest group, I'd be probably saying to them, why haven't they applied to us? LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think probably for the middle group, you know, there is an ever greater need to demonstrate that you're generating work effectively, you know, mm. contribute positively contributing by bringing in business and things of that nature. And I think the earlier that you do that within a, a consultancy business, the more you're likely to get noticed because yeah. mm. you know that money talks in that That's respect. Right. And you know, it's really great to be that technical expert, and you will get so far. But actually, if you can't effectively generate income for the organization that can be quite limiting to your career so i think for those people in that middle middle particular area that would be the the other thing i talked about and also not to really ever consider yourself to be too much of a technical expert because that does tend to limit the ability mm. for you to be mobile within your career i think it's important to have a you know 
very deep knowledge in, the, in, in whatever it is you're focused in, but also to be able to make sure you find the time and the space to be able to not get stuck in that, mm. <laughs> in that, uh, in that area is, is, is really important, basically, because otherwise you get stuck. Yeah, and I think with one approaching partner, it's actually be brave. Because I think when people start approaching partner, they have they've quite a burden of risk, really, because mm. they, you know, they've, being an age of coming to partner, they've probably got families to look after and things like that. But if they want to get to partner and get noticed, they have to be brave with their strategy and they have to know the market that surrounds them and understand you know, how that market's changing and not just try to kind of camouflage themselves in the norm in the hope that they won't make any mistakes because yeah. that doesn't make the best partner. Yeah. And then just flipping back on the, apart from the, in the people beginning their career of why haven't they applied to us, the other thing that I would actually say is be knowledgeable about the area they're going in. You know, I, we speak to Kubrick, we have the privilege of speaking to a lot of people in that position. And unfortunately, the ones we don't take on are the ones that, and there is a lot of them that do not know what's going on in the market. And actually, they should be, they should be well-read in the market they want to go into. They should be absorbing themselves in meetups and news and what's going yeah. on and who are the biggest changes and, and the why and how's it, how's it affecting the industry or even... You know, with, when it comes to data, mm. which is something we ask at Kubrick, how is it affecting your lives day to day? And I think that's really important. Yeah. And don't spend too long on social media with all the buzzwords. No, that's right. Playing blockchain bingo. No, that's right. Yeah, really, no, really know the market because we'll see through it. So. <laughs> there, are, there are a huge amount of crypto blockchain yeah. experts yeah. now. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of very artificially intelligent people. Out there. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that I think that's a, a brilliant place to finish. So, Simon, Tim, thank you so much for your time. If people have listened to this, they want to they want to find out more about Kubrick. They want to find out more about you, or, or like you said, they you know they want to apply. Where where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, I'm quite old fashioned, so telephones are good for me. Yeah. <laughs> and emails. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean. Yeah. I mean uh, you know, also contact Simon or I. Or yeah, I think on this podcast, contact Tim or I and look at our website. Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll put the website, I'll put, if, you know, if it's okay with you guys, I'll put your contact details yeah, in the show absolutely. notes. And yeah. yeah, let people reach out. Well, Tim, Simon, really enjoyed it and all the best for the rest of your week. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.